I went to a museum, Red Brother. Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. What they used to do. A short study of word and world. We'll look at two stories that represent archetypal warning parables concerning the dispossession of indigenous inhabitants by powerful colonizing forces. These are twinned tales of two queens, both of whose voices haunt us today. Some quick context to the more recent story. English Captain James Cook first arrived in the Hawaiian Islands in 1778, around the same time as the advent of Spanish settlers here in California. New England Congregationalist missionaries arrived in 1820 to the sovereign indigenous nation of Hawaii with embassies all around the world. But with their highly critical and pejorative views of native culture, the Howley missionaries set about instilling their unique blend of Puritan morals and capitalist values. Over the next 50 years, these families and their descendants became wealthy, procuring land, establishing plantations, and exerting growing influence on the Hawaiian kingdom people like the pineapple baron Sanford Dole. This creeping colonization was challenged during David Kalakau's reign beginning in 1874. He began pushing back to restore Native Hawaiians' waning rights. Consequently, the missionary party uh, and others who favored annexation of the kingdom to the United States in 1887 organized a local militia of Americans to force Kalakau to sign a new constitution at gunpoint. Nicknamed the Bayonet Constitution, it removed much of the king's power and took away the voting rights of three quarters of the native Hawaiian population. Upon Kalakau's death in 1891, Lydia Kamakeha became the first Hawaiian female monarch. Responding to native outrage, Queen Liliuokalani abrogated the 1887 constitution and began drafting a new one that would restore power to the Republican monarchy and voting rights to disenfranchise native Hawaiians and Asians. This act became the proximate cause of the overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom. On January 14, 1893, a group calling itself the Committee of Safety, led by American and European businessmen, implemented plans to depose the Queen and secure annexation by the United States. Two days later, U.S. Marines came ashore and forced Lilio Kalani, who had no military, to step down. She agreed to relinquish her throne temporarily in order to avoid bloodshed. But she never regained it. We don't have time to recount here the continuation of this sordid tale. Lilio Kalani did, however, tell her side of the story in a memoir written under house arrest entitled Hawaii's Story, published in 1898. This was part of her efforts to get the U.S. Congress to restore Hawaiian sovereignty. In the book's poignant closing passage, Lilio Kalani, a devout Christian, 
makes this direct appeal to both the religious and democratic conscience of the American public. Oh, honest Americans, as Christians, hear me for my downtrodden people. Their form of government is as dear to them as yours is precious to you. Quite warmly as you love your country, so do they love theirs. With all your goodly possessions covering a territory so immense that there yet remain parts unexplored. This is 1898. Then she issued a stern warning challenging these apostate Christian missionaries to be accountable to their own biblical traditions of divine justice. The people to whom your fathers told of the living God and taught to call Father, and now whom the sons seek to despoil and destroy, are crying aloud in their time of trouble. And God will keep God's promise and will listen to the voices of the Hawaiian children lamenting their homes. Finally, acting as prophet, Lilio Kalani invokes the Hebrew prophets, specifically the story of Naboth's vineyard. Do not covet the little vineyard of Naboth so far from your shores, lest the punishment of Ahab fall upon you, if not in your day, then in that of your children. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Lilio Kalani's summoning of this prophetic tradition is deeply relevant to the themes of this institute. So let us turn our attention for just a few moments to this amazing biblical tale, because it articulates this archetypal contrast between powerful interests who expropriate and exploit land for profit and the traditional people of those lands who are displaced. The story of settler colonialism. As Tim knows, we first offered this study in Hawaii almost a decade ago. We drew on the work of Hebrew Bible scholar Ellen Davis, whose book Scripture, Culture, and Agriculture is, in my opinion, one of the more important biblical studies of the last decade. Chapter 21 in 1 Kings, and it's printed in your program book on page 13, uh, if you want to follow along, is a relatively freestanding unit suggesting that this warning tale may have circulated independently in antiquity. It's the story of the obscure but noble protagonist Naboth, a traditional landowner who is never mentioned again in the Bible. His antagonist is the famous King Ahab, whose portrayal here stands in radical contrast to how he is presented in the rest of the Deuteronomic history. Davis calls this story an emblematic tale of two economic systems or cultures in conflict, each with a different principle of land tenure. The ancestral household is threatened by an expanding royal domain, symbolized here by the fact that Ahab doesn't just live in a house, it's a palace, hekal, a term in the Bible usually reserved for foreign kings. And this is only his winter pad the scene, significantly, is in the Jezreel Valley, which both then and still today represents the agricultural heartland of Israel. Frankly, Naboth's unequivocal refusal seems unreasonable to us modern readers who are socialized into the culture of real estate deals. We see no problem with Ahab's offer. Governments have the right to exercise eminent domain, and the king is making a generous offer of equal exchange or fair price. But Davis points out here, in the only line Naboth speaks in the story, 
His objection is grounded in the theological principle of impurity, halilah. To sell or trade his beloved land would defile him. To traditional people all over the world, Naboth's position makes perfect sense. The land is simply not for sale because it's not a commodity. It is nahala. It is significant that there is no appropriate word in English that expresses the meaning of nahala in Hebrew. Doubtless because our linguistic system correlates so closely with the rise of capitalism, which recognizes no relationship with the land not predicated on absolute ownership and production. But nahala connotes a sense that the land is held as a gift from creator, and its use is conditional not only upon good stewardship, but on a deep and intergenerationally abiding covenant relationship with both land and creator. Naboth belongs to the land. It does not belong to him. In contrast, the world of settler colonialism was fundamentally forged on 500 years of relentless encounters between those with aggressive political and legal ideologies of land possession and indigenous people whose relationship with their lands had no word for ownership. In every case, the colonizing way of life eventually won out, either by force of arms or political intrigue, as in the case in Hawaii, or by economic and legal expropriation. The triumph of what we might call Ahab's story is captured in this 19th century poster, famous image, I know you all know it, by John Gast, that celebrates the inexorable march of white domination over the continent led by the militia, followed closely by resource extractors, the sun rising behind them, while indigenous people and wild animals flee into the darkness. In 1 Kings 21, in a few strokes, the storyteller has captured the essence, sorry, come on, has captured the essence uh, of the distinction between these two contrasting ways of life. This distinction is key not only to how we read the Naboth story, but indeed how we read the entire history of North America and ongoing struggles of resource extraction around the world today. The rest of 1 Kings 21 provides a reality check for what agrarian Israelite traditionalists were up against as the next episode turns to an account of the royal conspiracy to seize what won't be sold or traded. Um, and again, if the text is too small here, you can consult your program book. Here's the old and continuing story. What can't be taken by persuasion will be expropriated by force. In this account, Naboth's refusal to sell is reiterated no less than three times here in yellow by his antagonists, exhibiting tones of frustration and incred incredulity. What's up with this dude? Jezebel now emerges as the primary conspirator, while King Ahab is portrayed as a sulking little boy who can't get what he wants. This kind of caricature has all the elements of a political cartoon, for in fact, Ahab was a powerful war warrior and stern ruler who lost few battles and brooked no opposition. In verse 7, the queen diagnoses the standoff with Naboth as a threat to royal sovereignty. <clears throat> the Hebrew here, Ta'asa Meluka can be tra translated, are you exercising sovereignty or not? 
questioning her husband's manhood, Jezebel now takes matters into her own hand. Verse 8 reveals that Naboth was not just a stubborn country bumpkin. He was an influential leader in his own right among the traditionalists, part of the local village assembly of elders. But since he won't be bought, Jezebel sets about to recruit locals to do her dirty work, doubtless by granting favors or lands to those who cooperate. Does this sound familiar? The Phoenician queen, an agent of the nearby powerful and aggressive city-states of Tyre and Sidon, knows how to break native resistance. The story makes it clear that whoever cooperates will have the approval of the royal house, symbolized by the royal seal. This, of course, is part of the archetypal story. Bribe, divide, conquer. But notice that Jezebel says nothing of the king's land grab strategy, something the village elders would hardly have condoned. No, this is a trumped-up charge of blasphemy. In the end, those who cooperate will be duped by the regime. They'll lose their way of life, too. This scenario exhibits the worst kind of complicit political behavior. This conspiracy to murder an innocent man is, A, veiled in the religious language of a public fast, two, engineered by false witnesses, perhaps the worst sin in all of Torah, and three, couched in terms of blasphemy against, note carefully, God and the king, as if the two were equivalent. The men of the city... Uh, the elders and nobles, right, they carry this out, the whole sordid plan, point by point, in careful repetition, meaning to underline its depravity, which makes a mockery, mockery of sacred ritual, community deliberation, and theological confession all at once. The account concludes with a conspirator's report that the evil deed has been accomplished. Mission accomplished. This story is also a political cartoon, a parody of the worst sort of political and personal betrayal and underhandedness. The Bible is full of such uh, parodies. Satire was and is one of the most powerful rhetorical weapons uh, of the politically disenfranchised, exposing the true character of the ruling class through dark caricature. Readers of the Gospels can hear echoes of the beheading of John the Baptist by Herod at a party for all the leading men of Galilee. Helen Davis argues that this whole scenario is about a political power play. Ahab wished to break the pockets of resistance to his growing royal hegemony, which may have been why he moved his winter palace right into the heart of the Jezreel Valley in the first place. It's like putting a fort right in the middle of Indian territory in 19th century uh, U.S., or a military base smack in the middle of tribal areas of Afghanistan today. Unable to co-op Naboth, Ahab eliminated him, thus breaking the power of the local agrarian resistance. Empire is lethal business. The alleged desire for a vegetable garden, of course, was a ruse. No monarch would uproot a productive vineyard when wine was so much more valuable, a commodity on the international market, than humble local vegetables. Some of you farmers know all about that. He wanted that vineyard for his own royal pleasure and profit. The dirty deed done, the story seems to grind to a halt in verse 16. Naboth is murdered, 
the lawyers move in to legitimate the transaction, killing and taking possession. That is the most succinct description of the strategy of settler colonialism ever. And it appeared in a story more than 2,500 years old. But just as the king is about to steal the deed and seal the deal, the word of God suddenly opens up a new song line. The prophet Elijah is summoned by the divine voice to the scene of the crime. Friends, as long as there are believers who listen to the voice of justice, the story of settler colonialism, no matter how tragic and sordid, is never over. Elijah, let us recall, has skirmished repeatedly in 1 Kings 17 to 19 with both Ahab and Jezebel, the queen who is called by, in the Deuteronomic uh, historian, the killer of the prophets of Israel. In fact, Elijah has already gone into hiding once for fear of his life. I think it was over on Figueroa Mountain. But despite the obvious dangers of confronting these rulers with their public crimes, Ahab's deadly dismantling of the traditional way of life in Jezreel is so egregious that Elijah has to show up to speak truth and to take the consequences. Elijah's given two parts, uh, the, the Elijah scene is in two parts like a court scene. His indictment is clear, rhetorical question as conviction. Note the succinct reiteration of the double crime, killing and taking possession, murder and illegal expropriation. The economic growth policy of excuse me, Ahab is exposed <laughs> as the power of death. Next comes the sentencing. There are inevitable consequences to bad behavior. In short, Ahab will reap what he has sown, articulated in rather graphic language. Ahab's response is tragicomic. Oh, he mutters again, you again. And, ah, oh, so you found me out. The king understands the prophet to be his enemy. This is the archetypal truth in biblical history, and it certainly resonates with our own. When we think how Dr. King was assassinated by his own government on April 4, 1968, exactly one year to the hour after he told the truth about the pathological triplets we discussed last night, Elijah's response is sharply ironic. The one whose policies are creating debt slaves across the latifundialized landscape has voluntarily sold himself to his own system that enslaves people. It will ultimately bring his own demise. And that, as Malcolm X famously said, is chickens coming home to roost. In the epilogue to the story, judgment doesn't come right away, but it does come in the next generation, a story told later in 2 Kings Nine. Elijah, well, of course, he's notoriously undead in the biblical testimony. His spirit hovers in a fiery chariot, chariot over our history like an unresolved cord. It beckons us to join in speaking truth to the Ahabs of settler colonialism with us, within us and around us, and to stand with Naboth's kin in the ongoing struggle for justice and reparation. Which brings us, in conclusion, back to the story of the good queen, Lilio Kalani, 
Her appeal to the American Christians fell on deaf ears. It was also ignored by President William McKinley, who went on to preside over the complete annexation of Hawaii. A Methodist church delegation in 1899 visited the president with concerns about the rising tide of U.S. adventurism abroad, first Hawaii, then the Philippines. The Gilded Age president told them in an assertion of presidential piety as baldly calculating as any, any exhibited by number 45, I went down on my knees and prayed to God for light and guidance, and then it came to me one night. We can't give the Philippines back to Spain. That would be cowardly and dishonorable. We could not turn them over to our commercial rivals in the Orient. That would be bad for business. And we could not leave them to themselves, for they were unfit for self-government. There was nothing left for us to do but take them all and uplift and civilize and Christianize them. And then I went to bed and slept soundly. Here again, two contrasting expressions of profoundly different cultural orientations at the end of the 19th century. A millennium and a half before Lilio Kalani, St. Ambrose, sorry. <laughs> that wasn't St. Ambrose. This is St. Ambrose, Archbishop of Milan in the fourth century, invoked Naboth's legacy to protest injustice. His epistle, De Nabote, was written in the last decades of the fourth century, just a few generations after the Christian church had made its fateful deal with Constantine, after which she would be colonized by the Roman Empire almost beyond recognition. The opening lines are a lament that echoes down the corridor of ages, as if Ambrose was summarizing the countless acts of genocide and dispossession that empires had and would inflict on peoples of the land. The old story of Naboth, he said, repeats itself every day. More than one Ahab has seen the light of day. And Ahab is born every day. None seem to ever die. When one falls, many more rise up. Every day, a Naboth is oppressed, a poor person killed. These searing words confirm the biblical story as an enduring warning parable about all who kill traditional people and take possession of their nahala every day, every day, every day in the history of settler colonialism. We settler Christians are rightly haunted by this tale of two queens, one from our deep religious past, the other from our recent American history. The soul of Jezebel seems to inhabit our rulers today, near and far. Sorry, where is he? There he is. Righteously presiding over prayer breakfasts while bulldozing oil pipelines over the bodies of water protectors or engineering coups in places like Bolivia for resources like lithium. But the voice of Mother Lilio Colani likewise continues to challenge the children of empire to make things right or face the inevitable consequences. I can attest that Lilio Colani's legacy changed my life. Because of time last night, I didn't get to share how I got started in the work of indigenous solidarity, but a huge influence on me was the Hawaiian sovereignty movement in the 1980s. 
Almost exactly 40 years ago this month, my path as a young activist took a dramatic turn when I attended a conference in Hawaii about demilitarization and decolonization in the Pacific. There I met young indigenous leaders who took me to school teaching me about the realities of Dr. King's three triplets and for how native traditionalists in the so-called fourth world at that time, racism, militarism, and economic exploitation are simply inseparable. It was the beginning of my baptism into the journey of decolonization. There I met young indigenous leaders uh, who, who, uh, <clears throat> who helped me. Uh, and throughout the 1980s and 90s, I continued to learn working with the Hawaiian Sovereignty Movement from Lilio Kalani's spiritual children, people like Haunani K. Trask and Noah Emmett Aluli. For me, there is a di direct line from working with folks like this and the work we are doing now. I am deeply grateful for that journey and for the opportunity this week to deepen it with you all. You have been listening to the BartCast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the BartCast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening. Oh, oh, oh.